Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Okay, well today, again, as I said, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 41. And if you didn't know it, this is actually the last book in the, or in the first section of the book of Psalms that's known as the Psalms of David. So uh, Lord willing, when we get together next week, we'll actually take a look at something that's other than David and other than a man who is also still sick as a result of his sin. So today, though, again, we're going to be looking at Psalm 41. It's a rather unique psalm in many ways. And the reason for that is not only because of the style of it, but because of the content of it. So the style is a bit difficult to categorize simply because David blends all sorts of different uh, genres together or styles together. So if you look at verses 1 through 3, he writes in the traditional style of wisdom literature, like a proverb. Then in verses 4 through 10, there's a mixture of lament, but also of request or petition. And then also in 11 and 12, he uses praise. And then in 13, there's a doxology. So in one sense, it defies all categories, if you will. People have tried to press it into a mold, but it doesn't quite neatly fit. But the circumstances are really what we're going to deal with in large measure today. And I want you to understand that what David writes this psalm out of is just anything but happy circumstances. Now, if you've been here for any number of weeks, you've known that's pretty much the style that he's been writing in, correct? Well, today he is still on his sickbed as a result of his previous sin. And while he knows that he stands forgiven, the Lord has not yet seen fit to heal him. Now, if this weren't bad enough, a group of men have actually risen up to usurp the throne. But even worse than this is that one of these men is David's close friend. So on one hand, you find a man who is desperately sick. He's still not healed. Then on the opposite end, you find a man who is being betrayed, and it's really a betrayal of the worst sort imaginable. In spite of the circumstances that he finds himself in, though, he focuses on a reality that all God's children know and love and hold dear, and that is God's mercy. The reason he does this is to highlight a rather simple yet wonderful truth, and that is that the Lord blesses us in spite of evil days, in the midst of evil days even. He inevitably will give mercy to the merciful. He will rescue the afflicted from every foe, and he upholds the upright in their integrity. That's going to be the basic outline of what we see today. But all of it, beloved, all of it is actually designed to bring us to a place of praise in the midst of evil days. So turn with me now to verse 1, where we see the first blessing of God in the midst of evil days. And again, that is that the Lord shows mercy to the merciful. So again, notice David begins his psalm by teaching basic principles of proverbial wisdom. He writes in verse 1, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. Now, that might sound familiar to you, and it's simply because Christ also picks up pretty much the identical statement in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So you understand these are both speaking to this active state of blessing that sits upon the person. They are now blessed. Not that they will be blessed or have been blessed, but they are blessed. 
And it's all because they show mercy. In other words, it's this really, this constant state that they dwell in, this constant reality where the Lord's favor, the Lord's mercy is actively upon them every moment of their lives by virtue of the fact that they abide in a place where they also show mercy to others. So the idea, it's, it's not purely transactional, though. It's not this tit-for-tat type of relationship between showing mercy and then getting mercy. One of the simple reasons for this is that somebody who actually shows mercy shows they understand it, right? They understand how God has been merciful to them, and that's what enables them to then show mercy to others. In other words, a person who constantly or consistently shows mercy is one who comprehends that every single thing they have is by the sheer grace and mercy of God. They don't deserve it, and because of that, specifically because of that, they then give mercy to others. But there's also undoubtedly a principle where it shows us that one motivation for us to be merciful is that we will actually get mercy. Right? That's, a, that's what the text actually just simply says. The assumption, though, built into verse 1 is that there's going to be this position of weakness that we all find ourselves in at one point. So as we consider the helpless, we must also consider the fact that one day we too will be helpless. The idea is not that as we consider the helpless that we have some passing thoughts of them or that we pass along our quote-unquote good vibes, if you will, whatever the heck those are. The reality is that we actually help them. So James, the Apostle James would put it this way, what good is it if you see a brother or a sister without clothes and food? If one of you tells them, go in peace, I wish you well fed, I wish you much sleep, and yet you do nothing to give them what they need, he says that's merely a dead faith. Well, on the opposite end of it is something that we must acknowledge also. All of us will at one point or another be in a position of weakness. Even if we have life great, Death still strikes, tragedy still strikes, betrayal still comes. All of us face this reality in some way, shape, or form. In other words, it's, it's what we know to be true, that life is filled with uncertainty, hardship, and suffering. And that's a universal truth. Every person on this earth who has ever lived, who is living now, and who will ever live, will face themselves in a position of helplessness at one point or another. Actually, much of your life will be in that state. The instruction of wisdom here teaches that those who have been merciful will receive mercy. The word that David uses here for trouble is actually the Hebrew term for evil. It's ra'ah. That's literally the word for evil. It's intentionally broad. It's used to speak of natural disasters, war, famine, suffering, plagues, could be even grief, but also it could also just simply be the actions of evil men or the consequences of living in a broken and sinful world. So it's intentionally broad. But notice that he says that when the day of evil actually comes, what do they have? If they've shown mercy, what do they have? Look down with me. They will get mercy, yes. He says, though evil will still come upon them, in the midst of that, they will not be utterly ruined. They will not be destroyed. They will not be deserted on that day because God himself will be merciful to them. And so when we compare this to other aspects of like the book of Proverbs, uh, there's an incredibly stark difference between this one that the scriptures would call blessed and the one that the scriptures would call cursed. When the day of evil comes upon those who are cursed or those who hate mercy, those who show no mercy, they will be shown no mercy. 
Instead, Scripture simply says, and this is in Proverbs 1, by the way, Scripture simply says that they will eat the fruit of their own ways. They will be returned upon their own head. When the day of evil comes against those who show mercy, though, they will receive it. The Scripture says that the ones who heed wisdom, those who love the Lord, that they will dwell in safety, they will be secure from every fear of evil. But in this text, it's incredible because David actually expands even more on this idea. So look with me now to verses 2 through 3, where we start to see just how, how safe and secure those who have been merciful are in the hands of their merciful father. So David lists three different ways that they will be shown mercy by God in days of great evil. And the first, if you look down at verse 2, at least the first half of it, is he says, the Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Well, the point that David makes here is simply that when evil actually comes upon this blessed man or this merciful man, they won't be overtaken by it. To put it in the clearest words, evil will not have the final say. Instead, actually, the opposite is going to be the case for them. All who look upon them, all who look upon them in the earth will actually say, you are blessed. Now, the idea here is that one who is blessed of God is blessed in the midst of these evil circumstances is actually preserved and protected. They are sustained by God himself. And so what would cause others without God to be heavy into despair or ruin causes those who have been merciful to flourish. It's actually the very means that God is sustaining them and providing and ultimately bringing them through to save them. Well, secondly, he says that the Lord will not give them over to the desire of their enemies. And that's in the second half of verse two here. We're going to flesh this out a bit more shortly So for now, though, I want you to understand David is simply saying that the wicked will not destroy them as they desire. In a nutshell, that's it. They they just simply won't be able to get their way. Now, thirdly, if you look at verse 3 with me, notice what he says here. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed in his illness. You restore him to health. Now, the, the picture he gives here is actually quite beautiful. He's talking about this man laying on a sickbed, literally like you would be in a hospital. But he says, and still, instead of that being a thing of death or misery or hopelessness to them, the Lord actually transforms that very thing into the place of healing. So his sickbed has become the place of his healing. The very thing that would be a cause for despair becomes a thing of hope. So even though they may be on the brink of death, the God of life is with them. He is sustaining them. He is healing them. And ultimately, he will restore them. So God comes through for the merciful in their time of need because they are people who are characterized by mercy. Where they gave mercy, here's the wonderful thing, God gives all more. It's important for us to remember, though, that as we look at this section, it's proverbial wisdom. What that means is it's not a guarantee. It's not a one-to-one comparison where every single thing in your life is going to be rosy simply because you've been a person characterized by mercy. It gives us general principles that are true. So it does not mean that you won't become sick to the point of death. It does not mean that evil men will not rise and ultimately take your life. It does not mean that we will escape death during dark and difficult days. We will all face evil. Many of you know this very well at this exact moment because you are facing evil or you have faced evil. That's just the reality of all people is that we will always face evil days. We will face false accusations. We will face schemes against us from those who wish to kill us or bring us into harm. And inevitably, we are all going to be faced with death, that most evil reality. 
that we cannot do nothing to save. And yet the wonderfully true paradox of mercy remains. If we have shown mercy, the Lord will show us mercy. Evil will not ultimately triumph in the end. And that's good news. We have the benefit of knowing that even if all fails in this life, God will not fail to bring us right into the next. And yet just as dear to us is the reality that God's mercy is not simply this this reality that will take place later, in the midst of evil days, he promises to sustain us. He gives us sufficient grace and mercy, in other words, in the midst of hardship. Though we may face innumerable hardships, we will remain blessed by God. All who see us will marvel with wonder at how, how we can have joy in spite of the evil circumstances continually surrounding us. And all we will be able to do is point them back to the God of mercy. Right? If you have faced hardship over and again, you know that this is the case. There's a reality in which you just simply cannot do it on your own. And as people say, how do you do it? What do you always go back to? But Christ. The reality is that hardships in this life cannot strip us of the blessings that God gives us. Though we may face enemies on every side, we will remain safe and secure in his grasp. As we are slandered or mocked or hated and the world cries out for us to return evil for evil, we know that instead we are to repay our enemies with kindness. We are to bless those who curse us, right? We know that as we give mercy to our enemies, God will give us all the more. That's one of the primary motivations born out of it. We entrust vengeance to him because he's going to take care of it in the perfect way. And yet somehow in God's economy, as we bless those who curse us, he rewards us all the more. The God of mercy shows mercy. We know that even if our enemies bring us to the grave, they cannot rob us, though, of our eternal inheritance. We also know that though our bodies may fail, I mean, let's be real here. Even if you get a full night's sleep at this time, sometimes your body's like, hey, congratulations, you did it wrong. You're going to be sore for the rest of the day, right? I mean, just be honest here. But we know that even as our bodies fail, the Lord preserves us through it all. He's our physician. He's always and ever watching out for us. If the Lord wills that we be healed, he will be the one to do it. If he wills that we see long and beautiful days, he is the one that's going to make sure we see those long and beautiful days. But even if we don't see those days, he's going to make sure that we live for all eternity, where there is no subjected, or we are never subjected to the curse any longer. We know we shall not be given over to death. So we can look at this and see the principle behind what he's teaching in Proverbs and place it in light of what we know to be true, and that is that God is faithful to be merciful because death holds no sway over the God of the living and that he will safely guarantee our passing into the next life. And he will not only do this, but he will actually raise our bodies. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. He will bring us to a place where we are safe and secure for all time. So what this section teaches us in reality is a theology of suffering. It teaches us principles of wisdom, but it also teaches us a theology of suffering. It's perhaps one of the hardest doctrines for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? We tend to count the good days where sickness is kept at bay, where we are at peace with all men, and where we face little adversity as the days of God's blessing. And yet, The circumstances of this psalm show us that David has all of these things and more, and yet he is content in his God. He sees God as merciful. The reality is that if we tend to look at the blessing of God as just the good days, if you will, 
we may simply miss God's mercy to us all the more in the midst of those evil days. The point I'm making is not somehow that we trick our minds or become sadists, if you will, and think that evil is good, and therefore we ought to pursue all of the things that make us harmed. No sickness, betrayal, persecution, everything like this is actually evil. It's all produced out of a a world that is cursed, subjected to futility. But what comes upon us as evil is the very same thing that the Lord has brought upon us for our good. In other words, much like the sickbed became a place of healing to David, evil circumstances become a place of blessing for us. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And the reason for it is because we tend to think so narrowly that we miss the reality that even in the midst of those days that God is sustaining us, he is caring for us, and he is always going to make sure that we move into the next life, safe and secure. We shall be given mercy, and therefore we have every reason to expect that God will give us mercy. When all others lose hope, we know that God is our attendant physician. He sustains us in the midst of trials. He heals both body and soul. He restores us in the ultimate sense. And even if we fail to see that in this life, we are guaranteed to see it in the next. Now, knowing all of this and more, really, if we look at the fullness of Scripture, is what actually frees you and I up to be a people of mercy. Mercy simply defined is giving that which people do not deserve. Can you think of a single thing in your life, if you're in Christ, that you have deserved? I think if we're we're honest, we like to think, yeah, there's things I've deserved. But the reality is, as we look at Scripture and submit ourselves to its teaching, is that we've deserved no bit of it. God has always been kind. And so out of that reality, we give mercy. And yet also we know that as God has seen fit to bless us, that we continue to give mercy. It's this reciprocal thing where we give mercy, we get all the more mercy. And it's just this never-ending cycle of mercy. It's incredible. So that's really the first blessing in a nutshell that he's speaking to here in verses one through three. In the God, in the midst of times of great evil, he shows mercy to the merciful. David is a man who looks at this and says, Lord, I've been a man of mercy. And so the rest of this psalm now, he is framing around this idea. He's asking God to give him mercy, in other words, because his life has been characterized by it. So look with me now to verses four through 10, and we're gonna start to see all of this break out. And this, the second promise that comes out of this is that the Lord of rescues the afflicted in every single way from every foe. So in this section, David is now looking back. He's, he's saying there's a time where he saw the Lord's mercy to him firsthand, right? So if you look at verse 4, he uses the past tense here. So that's important. So notice it. He says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, we know from verse 3, we can also actually safely assume he's still in this place of sickness. And again, he's speaking about this sickness that's been brought on him as a result of his own sin. So evidently, he's not been fully healed at this point. And we can see this because he switches back and forth between the past tense and the present tense here. So just very briefly, look at verse 5. He switches to the present tense. But for now, let's just draw this out a little bit further. Notice his prayer contains, or I should say contained, two different requests as he sat upon his sickbed. He asked, Lord, would you be gracious to me and would you heal me? Two very simple requests, right? Well, David undoubtedly desired to be healed of his sickness at this point. 
and the reason he cried out to his God, though, was not because of ultimately the sickness. I mean, that's part of it. But the real reality, if you will, is that he saw his soul was not well. Heal my soul. I mean, that's a very explicit request, isn't it? He knew that his sin was the cause of his sickness, and so his prayer was informed by the desire to be free of the root cause of that sickness. In other words, David knew that even if his body was healed and yet his soul was not, all was not well. He knew that God's mercy must reach down to the depths of his being and actually remove the rot of sin so he could stand and be fully healed. In other words, Lord, if my body is not full and well, then what does it matter if my heart is well? Or flip that the opposite way around. If my heart is well, or if my heart is not well, rather, what does it matter if I'm in the perfect condition of health? Well, David also understood he deserved it. He relied completely on the grace and mercy of God. He knew that his sin brought his sickness He knew that he didn't deserve forgiveness and restoration, and that's exactly what he asked for, though. He knew that God is a God of mercy. Well, David received forgiveness from God. We can tell this by the fact that he's no longer crying out for forgiveness at this point. He's actually stopped here and is just asking to be restored or to be healed because he's still incredibly sick. But I want you to notice this gets all the more urgent as we look at verses 5 through 9. As we look at this next section, though, again, notice he switches back to the present tense. This is a current thing happening to him. He's no longer recalling a past prayer where God finally healed his soul and made all things well with him, but he's making a new plea now because he's got these men surrounding him and wishing to kill him. So notice what he says starting in verse 5. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, He speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt, saying, a wicked thing is poured out on him, that when he lies down, he will not rise again. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, David's situation has gone from bad to worse, hasn't it? He's not merely sick. He has people that are rising to the occasion in the midst of his sickness to see him die. Now, the text, if you paid attention to it, it gives no indication these are foreign threats to the throne. It's not another nation, in other words. These are men that he has known for years. These are likely advisors, brothers at arms, confidants, fellow Israelites, in other words, We don't know the exact circumstance of it in terms of who it is because he doesn't say explicitly here. But ultimately, these men were fair-weather friends. What they waited for was a perfect opportunity to get their grubby little hands on what they so desperately desired, which was power, which was the throne. In a word, it's sedition. They're not brave enough to kill him outright, but now, now that he's sick... All you have to do is wait a little bit. Wait for the man to die. When will he die, they ask. They're eagerly awaiting it. Like gossiping little schoolgirls, they speak evil to one another, saying, when will he just die? They're rooting for him, but not in a good way. But more than this, though, they desired that his name would perish. 
In other words, they want his very name to fade from existence or to be a curse upon the people when they recall it. If they had their way, they would have blotted it out of the book of the kings. They'd make sure his name, his reputation, everything was erased, but they likely can't do that either. Now, if you knew anything about history within times of kings and sedition, what they would often do is plan to kill any and all sons of the king so that way no new king could come from that line. And so total annihilation. Not only do you get rid of David, you get rid of the next in line. All so that line could never, ever continue. Again, this is a very threat to the promise of God to David. Notice, though, how close these men were to him. So look down with me at verse 6. He speaks of a man who came to visit him on a sickbed. He says, when, that, when this man comes in, he comes in his presence, he says, this man speaks nothing but falsehoods. In his heart, though, he gathers more and more wickedness to itself. And then out of the heart, the mouth speaks, doesn't it? He spoke flattering words of comfort to the dying king, but inwardly, he just simply devised more and more lies to tell the people. It's not merely enough for the king to die, he thinks. I have to soil his name. Everybody loves David. We can change that. He'll be remembered as a wicked king. Notice at the end of verse 6, though, we see that this man gathers others around him who hate the king. Verse 7 tells us these men whisper together against him. They devise David's harm. So at first, and you can just kind of picture this, as the whispers maybe stay contained to that small group of traitors, Slowly but surely, the whispers spread only as whispers do. These are not idle gossipers and slanders, in other words. No, these are men who desire the people to know just how much the Lord truly hates David. He's not the Lord's anointed one, they say. No good king would be stricken of God like this. His own sin brought him into this mess. God is punishing him. Surely God has forsaken him. God's cursed him. And of course, like all good lies, they contain just enough of the truth, don't they? Again, you can imagine the glee they have as they see this frail, sickly king just continuing to slip further and further into decline. It gave them all the more fuel for their vicious slander. A wicked thing is poured out upon him, they said. As he lies down, he shall not rise again. God shall smite him to the ground. The people don't know any better. They don't have access to the king. These are trusted men. These are men the king went into battle with. They know him. The man leading the charge has even gone in to visit with him. Surely, if anybody knows him, he does. Ah, but there's one yet who knows him better. If you don't want to take this man's word for it, perhaps he'll take his best friend's word for it. Betrayal of the highest order. David's close friend, even his close friend whom he trusted, whom he shared countless meals with, he says, has lifted his heel against him. The word that David uses here is shalom. It means peace. This was a man of peace to David. He was a true friend, at least he thought. He was a man that David thought was more committed to him than anybody else. He was his confidant. He shared meals with him. He broke bread with him. That's fellowship, not only just simply eating, but he was by his side in everything. 
And yet this man was a traitor. The depth of his betrayal would have been like a dagger to the heart. And do you, Brutus? This would be the worst betrayal recorded in Scripture if it didn't also speak to another betrayal. John 13, verses 18 through 30, you don't need to open there. Just know that's where this comes from. John picks up this verse to speak of Judas. In John 13, our Lord, Jesus Christ, recites this verse to his disciples on the night they shared the Last Supper. As he reclined at the table and all were eating, Jesus finally broke the silence. He says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. You imagine the air hung thick. Their eyes dart back and forth as they wonder who would do such a thing. Three years in his presence. Three years of miracles. Three years of teaching and authority like no other. Three years of breaking bread. One after another, they began to say, surely it is not I, Lord. And their minds began to race. Who is it? The one who would betray him, somehow unseen and unheard by the others. Surely you don't mean it's me, Rabbi. As the measly sum of 30 pieces of silver hung loose in his pocket. Jesus answered, Judas, you have said it yourself. What you are about to do, go and do quickly. And as we heard this morning, like a lamb led to the slaughter, a sheep before his shearers, silently he went before his accusers. In his mouth there was no deceit. He had not done any violence, and yet he was considered cursed, stricken by God. He was cut off from the land of the living. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Betrayal of the highest order. Three years. And it was three sheer years of incredible mercy. If you are confused just on how radical mercy is, it's that. Christ, being God himself, broke bread with one he knew would betray him. He lived life with him every single day of the year for three years. He patiently instructed the treasonous liar. He showed him nothing but love and mercy and grace, and knowing that one fateful day this same man would betray him with a kiss. And yet Judas was not a man who showed mercy, was he? He was a man who embodied the proverbial fool who ate the fruit of his own ways. But there's something even more profound and, and wonderful about all of this is that Christ is our sympathetic high priest. If you've ever experienced betrayal before, you know just as well as I do how it forms his bottomless pit in the depth of your soul. You pour out your time, your money, your heart to a person who maybe speaks words of comfort to your face, and yet you know they speak lies behind your back. They falsely accuse you, they see you down on your luck, and they see it as a perfect opportunity to rise to the occasion and maybe get their own way to plunge that knife down just a little bit further. But what's your call in the midst of that? Mercy. It's still mercy. 
the wildest thing in all the world. Nobody can fathom it. You show mercy, and the simple reason is what we've already learned above. The Lord shows mercy to the merciful. But he also repays every single injustice. If you haven't experienced betrayal of this sort, know that one day you likely will. Whether you stay in the faith or not, you're going to find somebody who betrays you. But especially if you stay in the faith, it's going to happen to you. If we live, in fact, to face actual persecution, and I mean like hard persecution, guaranteed it will happen. You will have friends and brothers and sisters and children, perhaps even spouses. People who even go to church every single Sunday. They will show their true colors when it is time for that day. And yet your mission, your act of grace will be to show mercy. God shows mercy to the merciful. He repays every single injustice. He is a God who takes vengeance and executes it perfectly. I think of the early church. You have Christians that are being killed in horrendous ways for their faith. You have them literally impaled and lit on fire as torches for a dinner party for Caesar. That's what normal Christianity was. You have one man in particular who always stands out in my name, my mind. His name was Polycarp. He was a frail, old, gentle man who fiercely preached Christ and him crucified. He, among many others, were told under the penalty of death, Caesar is Lord. Say it. Say it. Burn incense. That's all you got to do. And yet he refused. And so one day, Roman soldiers come to his house. They are to bring him to the arena because he's going to be inevitably burned at the stake before an eager crowd. But when the soldiers come, do you know what he does? He doesn't go and get his sword. No, he asks them, will you come in and break bread? He offers to break bread with them. And then he says, will you give me an hour to pray? They agree. And shortly thereafter, he's martyred. Countless others in history have been killed for far, far less. The prophets were killed. Christ was killed. Whether you have enemies now or find it in the future, none of it will be empty of God's mercy, though. All of these great works speak of what's known as a martyr's grace, where in their time of need, God had given them exactly what they needed to endure. It's incredible. In God's perfect sovereignty, though, know this. He delights to bring you and I through the crucible of affliction that in part we might share in the sufferings of our Lord. But you do not simply become partakers of his sufferings. You have access to a high priest who knows exactly what that looks like. He knows suffering. He knows what it means to be needful of mercy in your time of need. And ultimately, the Lord rescues from every foe, whether in this life or the life to come. This is something that David knows quite well and he'll pick up on a bit later. But now, see, he's on the cusp of death. It's not merely illness that's coming for him, but the hand of his enemies. And so he asks in light of this God to deliver him. David's plea is not one of faint hope here, though. He prays in verse 10, look down with me, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Why? So that I might repay them. 
that I might repay them. He knows that the merciful is granted mercy. He's been a good king, and despite whatever slanderous lies have been spread against him, he knows the Lord has forgiven him for his sin. He has sealed his whole, or I should say he has healed his soul, rather. And so he expectantly waits for the Lord to show him mercy once again. But what might not settle well with you is David's motivation. He says, so that I might repay them. You might be asking, how does this actually square with this idea of mercy in the text you've been telling me about this whole time? Well, remember, David is actually king. He has every right to pursue the law. He has every right to wield the sword against those plotting against him. They've been found guilty in every single way. The law would demand their death. But his desire is not personal vengeance, beloved. His desire is to expose their treachery and lies to the whole of Israel. Because he's not asking to get up and just hack him together with a sword. Rather, Notice they've been making this claim that David's sickness is a curse from the Lord, meaning it's going to bring him down to the grave because God has actually cursed him. Now, again, there's that kernel of truth, right? The sin was brought on because of a sickness. And yet he's asking to be healed so that way he could wipe his name clean from the stain of their accusations. If the Lord is pleased to heal David and restore him, he knows, in other words, that the people are going to know they're all liars. David knows, in other words... If God is pleased to restore me, I can pursue every lawful action against these men. And even in this ordinary means, mercy is shown. Now, you might be asking again, how is that so? Well, what did the law do but provide a perfect standard of justice where the weak and the needy could plead their case before their accuser and be represented faithfully? That the evil and wicked man would not win out at the end of the day. So mercy, in other words, is not just simply the supernatural act of deliverance, but an ordinary means of executing justice. David knows he's been a man of mercy. He has upheld the law. Remember from last week, he delighted in the Lord's law. He affirms that the Lord blesses those who show show mercy, right? And he says that that time, my time of need is now, God. So he asks for mercy to be shown both in his healing, but also there's an aspect of it where he wants his name cleared. He wants the law to have its perfect effect as it should. He wants to pursue justice. But ultimately, as we see from the rest of the context here, he actually trusts that even if the outcome proves unfavorable in this life, justice will be meted out in the end. So what do we take from this before we simply move on to the next section? Well, in all of it, God's mercy is seen and that he will not simply let injustice go unpunished. Wrap your mind around that. No little injustice will go unpunished. In the ultimate sense, the guilty will never be cleared unless they fall upon the mercy and grace of God, and even then, vengeance and justice still must take place because it either falls on them or it falls on Christ. For the Christian, this could bring incredible peace simply because we know that God will not let evil again have the final word. Before God's perfect standard, everyone must stand. And they will either stand blameless in Christ or they will fall under judgment. We have the promise of vindication, final, true, lasting vindication when the Lord brings the living and the dead to judgment. Again, this is a time of great blessing when you actually have enemies. 
You know he shall not merely judge the wicked, but he will swallow all of our enemies up in victory. At the end of Isaiah, it actually paints this really stark picture where we stand and look upon those who have been condemned, and there is a rejoicing. There is a rejoicing, but it's a rejoicing because evil has been defeated. But especially as we look at those enemies we know so well of sin, Satan, and death, as we see them cast into the lake of fire forevermore, there will be the ultimate rejoicing. And yet the wonderful reality is that even more mercy than this awaits. It's not simply that justice will be had. Remember Christ himself says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. In other words, it's not simply God's mercy in justice being displayed. It's God's mercy in actual reward. Again, it flips the conventions on their heads, doesn't it? So as we saw, the first blessing in the psalm is that in the midst of great evil, the Lord gives mercy to the merciful. The second blessing we see is that God delivers from every foe. And yet while we might have to wait for that day, there will not only be that day, but there will actually be great reward. But the third blessing God gives his children in the midst of evil days is that he upholds the blameless in their integrity. Verses 11 and 12. Now, anyone in David's condition would have been simply left to wonder if the Lord really cared for them. But as we see in this set of verses, David is actually strengthened in his confidence. So even though he's still on his sickbed, he knows his soul is right with God, right? We've already covered that. It has truly become a place of healing for him. He knows that God has not dis- or forsaken him, despite whatever his enemies may be saying. Well, the reason for this is incredibly simple. If you look down, he just says, I'm not dead yet. It says in verse 11, by this, I know that you are pleased with me. Why? Because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. He's not dead. He knows that the Lord is pleased with him. He knows he's lived by this standard of mercy, in other words, but he's also seen this merciful hand of his father, both in the forgiveness of his sins, but also in the fact that God's still upholding him. He's still not allowed these men to rise up against him and ultimately win. He's at peace. His enemies have not gained the victory they desire, so whatever the outcome may be in the days to come, he knows that it's ultimately in God's hands and that God will act with justice. And yet, notice that David doesn't merely look at his immediate circumstances to see this gracious provision of God. So he, he's able to confirm, on one hand, he's safe and secure in the arms of his Lord now, and yet he moves that he's going to show that he's safe to the uttermost. So look down with me at verse 12. He says, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you set me before your presence forever. So David knows the Lord's not shocked to find traitors in his midst. He knows that also God sees integrity. He's blameless before these men. And so the Lord upholds him before these men. They are wicked. David has not treated them with anything but kindness and mercy. And yet as they raise against him, God says, no, I will uphold you. You will be the one to stand, in other words. So what he's describing here is simply that God, in one sense, has already vindicated him. Though his enemies surround him, though he sits on a sickbed, he, he knows God has healed his soul. 
but he's also seen his servant abide in faithfulness and mercy all the days of his life. He knows that David's a sinner. I mean, everybody knows that. Through and through, David's a sinner. He's still a man, though, who delights in God and his ways. More than this, though, is the God who delights in him. That's the incredible thing about this. Notice how he just frames this in pure, unbridled, untainted mercy and grace. He says, you have taken me and set me before your face. You set me in your presence forever, in other words. The Hebrew literally expressed is just what I said before that. You have placed me before your face eternally. It has in sense a mind of timelessness where David stands bare before his maker. So whatever David has done, whatever he's doing now, whatever he will do is forever before the gaze of his God. Forever. Not one bit of it's outside of it. In essence, David says, you have seen the whole of my life. From the days I remained in my, my mother's womb to the days I tended sheep and rescued them from the mouth of the lion, from the days I slew the giants to the day you made me king. Even on this day, when I am in my sickbed, my enemies surround me, I am before your face. You are there. You have seen it. You know me. In life and death, Lord, I am in your presence. You may be familiar with the Latin term. Some of you may be, if at least if you listen to R.C. Sproul. But it's that term, corum deo. And all that means is before the face of God. At the heart of this reality is that there is no divide between the sacred and the secular. So whether you're a minister or not makes no ultimate grand difference because all of life is life or one of worship. Whether you're changing diapers, you're putting the kids to sleep, you're working third shift, you're kissing your wife goodnight, or simply taking a sip of water, it's all lived out before the face of God. It's all before the presence of your king who sees all and knows all and hears all. It is your great priestly duty, in other words. But it's assigned to you by the king of kings. You live life before the face of God. All of life is worship. To live before the face of God means that you live a life of integrity. You are not one person on a Sunday and then another person behind closed doors. From one day to the next, you live with the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. In other words, you recognize that you live before his presence. Though you sin, you continue to battle. Though you fall, you continue to get back up. Though you doubt, you continue to hold fast to the faith. Though you despair, you continue to hope. But more importantly, to live before the face of God is to live with an awareness that his love very, or your very life is in his hands. Though your body may be ravaged by disease, you know the Father is with you at all times. Though your soul is sick with sin, you know that Christ has ultimately forgiven you if you are in him. Though your heart may fail, you know that the Spirit will preserve you to the very end. The triune God who works all things together according to the counsel of his will, who upholds the foundations of the earth, who set the stars in heavens and knows them by name, has set you, Coram Deo, before the face of God, and he knows every hair on your head. If you are one who is characterized by mercy, he will see it. Will he not have mercy upon the merciful? 
Will he not deliver you from every foe? If not in this life, surely in the life to come. But that's where the tension lies for us, doesn't it? We often know God's promises for those in Christ, but we are fickle and frail creatures. We, we are so prone to forget. We get scared. At least if we're honest, we get scared, don't we? We may not be scared of what comes next, but we sure as heck do not want to find out whatever that process is half the time. But notice that David ends this psalm on a note of tension, doesn't he? He doesn't record for us that he was delivered from his sickness nor even from his enemies here. We know from Scripture, at least later Revelation, that this is not how David dies. But that tension remains in this psalm for a purpose. Now, we're human. We want to see the good ending. We want to see where David rises up. He defeats his enemies, right? We want to see God's mercy poured out in his physical deliverance. But David just leaves us with a sense of hopeful foreboding. But he does it for a purpose. He's already told us the end of his story in one sense. You have set me, O Lord, in your presence forever. He is safe and secure before the face of God. He knows no illness can remove him from God's ultimate mercy. He knows no enemy can snatch away his blessing. He knows that the Lord upholds the blameless in integrity and that he will see to it one day that he is before him face to face. So why does he leave us with this tension? Well, like all the other Psalms, worship. It is to worship. He wants his people to be moved towards worship. David is smart enough to know that God's people will always, and I do mean always, endure some sort of suffering. He knows that some suffering will prove to be fatal for the children of God. He knows that some will not be healed from their sickness. He knows that some will not be rescued from affliction. Some will not be uh, saved from starvation. But the guarantee is safety in the grasp of God himself. Not that we will never face harm in this life, right? Death is the great equalizer for us all. And yet the wonderful truth to mercy is that it surpasses even the power of death because the God of living or God of the living will not let his people suffer decay. He will bring them into his presence where no more threat of harm can come. Christ himself even proved this to be true, did he not? When he raised from the dead, he showed without a shadow of a doubt that we can trust him. But just look at how he describes David here. He says, you, are before, you have set me before your face eternally. In one sense, that's the basis of the Christian hope. We have this concept that we obviously know as the resurrection, but the very basis of the Christian hope is that we have now direct access to the Father. We have confidence knowing because of Christ's resurrection that even death cannot stop God from having mercy on us. We know that even if we die, we will just simply move to the next life. We will move from seeing God dimly now to seeing him face to face with the utmost clarity in the life to come. But the fact remains, no matter what, we will live life before the very face of God. But splendidly, even now, Christ has brought us into the very throne room through his sacrifice. Right now, at this very moment, we don't think like this, but at this very moment, if you are in Christ, you have direct access to the Father at all 
times. Parents, think of it like your children. They can come into the room in the middle of the night at any point, right? And they often do it, whether it's like, hey, I threw up in my bed, or it's just they stand there awkwardly and strangely. (laughs) We all get it, right? (laughs) You have that kind of access. At any point, you can walk before your father. Christ has accomplished that for you. This is something that nobody in the Old Testament could even dream of because they had to go through a priest at all times. Even David, even the great king, could not have that great of a hope that we have in having direct access to the Father. He knew a fraction of what we knew because God has given us the fullness of Scripture. But even he, limited as he was, knew that all of life was before the gaze of his heavenly Father. He knew that, in other words, no matter what, from this life to the next, security, safety, or comfort and harm, that nothing could remove him from before the face of the Father. Whatever days he had left, David held on to this enduring hope that God had set him before himself. That could not be snatched away. Whether it was destroyed or cut short or tainted by evil as far as his life, that could not be snatched away. Now, whether you recognize it or not, you have been given life. We talked about this in our theology study this Thursday. We have a qualitatively and quantitatively different life, meaning that it's not only different in its essence, it is different in its scope of time. You are an eternal creature, in other words. Whether you're in Christ or not, you're eternal. Now, you will either suffer eternal death or you will have the bliss of eternal life. But if you are in Christ this day, that is a completely different life that you have been granted at this moment. At this moment. And you are simply waiting for the day the fullness of that arrives for you. You are waiting for the day, in other words, where you move from seeing God dimly to seeing him face to face. To seeing his promises dimly to seeing him face to face. So in the midst of whatever life throws at you, the response is nonetheless the same, and that is to worship. In light of this, David simply just writes this beautiful little doxology at the very end. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And so in light of that, I just simply tell you, church, behold your God. Behold your God. In all his infinite kindness, he not only gives you mercy in your time of need, he not only promises to deliver you from every single foe, whether in this life or the life to come, but he upholds you in your integrity in Christ and he will set you before the Father, blameless and with great joy. You are not David, you're not Israel. You do not have all the specific promises that they were given under the old covenant, and yet the principles of this passage apply to you in such a wonderful and splendid way. Because in Christ, you have the fullness of mercy and grace given to you. God has not only forgiven every single sin, he joyfully gave you Christ's righteousness. You were cleansed. Your sin-sick soul was healed. You've been restored to the full fellowship of God himself. And none of it's of your own doing. But even in that, he gave you a new heart. He gave you a new nature, one where mercy and grace now actually rules. And so, by God's own design, he poured mercy into you, a worthless sinner, 
raised you to new life, and has created you to be now a creature of mercy. And in that whole economy of things, as you give mercy, you get all the more. That's incredible. In Christ, you also have this short promise of final salvation. No matter what happens in this life, nothing can snatch you from the hand of the Father. All of God's enemies will be defeated. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forevermore. Even if enemies rise against you today, beloved, and justice is not found in this life, it will be sure to come in the next. In Christ, you are also upheld in your integrity. Right? God has created a completely different and new you. That's not some health, wealth, and prosperity junk. That's the reality of what God has done. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a creature of wrath, and now in Christ you are his beloved son or daughter who has been given a completely new and different nature. You delight in things that you did not delight in before. I asked this question to the group on Thursday, but again, how many of you are standing here simply because at some point in your deadness in sin, you had a desire to just be part of the church regularly? Was that not, if that happened, just the sure mercy and grace of God? All the desires that you have now in Christ, were any of them what you desired before? I, I didn't. I didn't desire to read my Bible or to pray or do any of that stuff. I didn't care to. And then one day, bam, God plucked me out of darkness and put me into light and put on a new set of desires. All of it is grace. But know that even in the midst of evil days, that still applies. That's the incredible truth of the matter. God's going to reward the faithful. Not only with this final salvation that's completely unmerited and undeserved that you have as your inheritance through Jesus Christ, but he will reward us with an unperishable treasure. And so in light of that, he says, live with reference before your king. Live as merciful stewards before your merciful God. Live as merciful stewards of God's grace in a merciless time. He will vindicate us. But in all these things, bless his name. Praise him in the evil days, for his mercies are new each morning. Praise him on the sickbed, for his mercy turns even this into the place of healing. Praise him as enemies surround, even as dear friends and family members betray you, because his mercy will deliver you, his justice will reign supreme, and his faithfulness will ensure that not even one name from the Lamb's book of life will be blotted out. Praise him, for he sets you before him in Christ. One great day you shall see him face to face. And praise him, beloved, because he is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you are such an incredibly kind and merciful God to us. Truly, left to our own ways and desires, we would not be even here today. We would still be dead in our sins. We would not know the forgiveness, the richness of your forgiveness through Christ. We would still be plotting our own course and our own path and seeking to do it our own way. And yet in that deadness, you brought life. You snatched us from the pit of hell and brought us to a place where we can see eternal life.
Well, I pray for those who do not know you here today that they would simply hear this and want this. They would be crazy not to want it, especially knowing that the opposite is nothing good. We thank you, Father, that you, even at the height of betrayal through Judas, that you gave us your son. For he not only betrayed Christ himself, he betrayed you in the ultimate sense, for you were his maker. And so I pray that we would look to Christ's example always and forevermore and see that we are to be a people of much mercy, hoping that in that you would be pleased to snatch others from eternal hellfire. May we do so in the power of your word and the grace of your Holy Spirit that you might quicken dead lives to faith. May we do so trusting that you have a number of people whom you desire to be saved, that we are to just simply be faithful stewards of the gospel. So I pray that we go with boldness, with conviction, with a heart for the lost, knowing that you will see to it to complete your good work. Father, we thank you even in this, that you have given us a place to where we can share this good news and that the promise is that we will get all the more mercy. It is mind-blowing how kind you have been to us. I pray now for your people as they go home and they set about another week that they would remind themselves of these vital truths as the world is swiftly headed to the grave. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.